Hello everybody, welcome to Little Rock Games Game of the Month Club, where each month we play a game and talk about it from a game design perspective, uh, and then we invite you to play along with us. This is our season finale recap, where we're going to review each game that we played this season. I'm Robbie. I'm Joe. I'm Brad. I'm Tanner. And I'm Olivia. So we'll just go around the room and introduce those games that we played, um, starting with Brad. Yeah, so my game that I picked in January for the first episode was Everything, and it is a a mindfulness walking sim. That's sort of the short version of it, but it's so much more than that. Um, if you haven't checked it out, you should. You should also go back and, of course, listen to our first podcasts. And the second game we played was the one I picked, uh, which is called Nantucket, which was a whaling simulator in a kind of 2D Victorian art style, lots of black and white. Um, and so that was game number two. In March, we uh, played my pick, which was Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor, which was a spaceport janitor simulator. Looks like we've got a few of those <laughs> on our plate. Uh, where the had a really unique art style, and it was just about uh, picking up trash and making money and trying to eat food. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm up next. Uh, <laughs> so the next game we played was Near Automata, which was our I think our only AAA game uh, this season, and it's um, an action game that's really heavy on story and encourages lots of replay. And for uh, last month, I picked the Norwood Suite, which is a surreal uh, sort of music-inspired game. Uh, yeah. All right. So uh, we're going to have a few questions, and we're going to kind of go through each one of those questions. Olivia, did you want to start with a question? Yeah, in general, I mean, this episode's probably going to be a little bit freeform because we're just sort of reflecting over the games we played and thinking about where to go from there. Yeah. Um, and I guess I could start us off by asking what we all thought about all of these games from an art and UX perspective. I know for all the episodes of the show, we talked about that a little bit because it's important to games in general. Um, but is there anything in that regard that stood out to you about something similar between all these games or something that, in particular that you would apply from them in, in terms of art design or, or UX? I can jump in. Uh... The most memorable, I think, as far as an art perspective, uh, is Nantucket. Um, that was one of my absolute favorite things about the game was how uh, how well they did all of the pieces to it, how how well all of the art and the extra uh, assets in it were just fantastic. From the art, the drawn style, uh, the old print style, uh, the maps that felt like a map on a table. Uh, all of the music that they put into it, the full, the full songs that was in it, the, the little right. sea shanties, were so great and so satisfying. And I think if I remember on our episode about Nantucket, kind of our our takeaway from it was whatever things we didn't like about the game, it totally made up for by the fact that they put or put in so many good uh, art assets that were that were just really nice. Made made it worth the price. I do think there were a few uh, UX exceptions that they did that that weren't that great, though. Stuff yeah. like some of the uh, combat mechanics weren't really naturally explained super well. Yeah. 
Um, some of the, I'd say the inventory panels and stuff were a little bit busy, but that wasn't yeah. really a major problem. It was really just in like your crew management where you had to like assign them to specific places. Yeah. Like that was really confusing to me at first. It took me a while to figure out. But and there were a few UI check boxes that didn't make, like they did the opposite of what uh, you were. That's yeah. my, what I remember is that there were a couple of places in the UI where your expectation of what should happen. Um, but you're right. The art was so gorgeous and satisfying that mm -hmm. and the loop was nice too um but yeah the ui needed a little help but the art was was satisfying for sure so just real quick for the listener uh ui is user interface and then ux is the user experience right they're not the same they're not <laughs> ui is part of ux it's a, it's a square not a rectangle <laughs> so often with I, rounded corners. <laughs> yes, often if it's in modern UI design. So I, what I, uh, something about the art that really stood out to me this season, especially in everything and Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor, and I don't mean this how it sounds, but you know it's okay to have crappy art. I guess yeah. you know what I mean. Like yeah. with every, I mean, if it's done purpose or. If not purposefully, but at least as, as long as you acknowledge it, I guess. Like so, in everything, it was sort of a. I don't know. I, I felt like it was a tool. I mean, clearly, they just didn't want to animate things, but it still worked with what was happening. Like you could read into it. It seemed like it sort of lended something to what was happening in the game. I remember that with with everything, it. On the one hand, it felt like he just grabbed a whole lot of. Uh, low poly assets and threw yep. them into Unity or whatever he built it with. I think it was Unity. Yep. It? Uh, mm -hmm. And and then animated them to roll instead of walk and and do kind of only a little bit. But on the other hand, it really worked. Um, I, I remember feeling like yeah, it was weird and wonky at first, having your elephant flip around across the right. uh, across the planes, but. I, it, again, it was satisfying. Right, and it, it also like doesn't matter because the focus is yes. not on on like, how realistic the things are. The focus is on sort of the abstracted experience, and that's mm -hmm. what it wants you to focus on. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing to bring up because that highlights some of the differences between the art and the art direction in yeah. the game. Because I feel like both of them, like they were, like they looked nice in general. Like a screenshot of it didn't look horrible, with the exception of some of the the UI panels and Diaries of Spaceport Janitor. Um, but just the overall aesthetic of the game was really consistent, and it was able to do that without having traditionally well executed artwork, which is really cool, especially for because uh, all of us as game designers are not particularly great at that sort of thing. So seeing examples of how the art design and direction can really influenced the way the game looks more so than the, te the technical art was, was sort of interesting to me. Yeah. And it, oh, sorry. Uh, but it also, it has this sort of side benefit to me that um, those people that really care about graphics and will not play a game that is not realistic are also probably the sorts of, of gamers that aren't able to appreciate a game like Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor. So it sort of like builds in, you know, uh, getting the audience that's ready to accept what it, what it is. Mm -hmm. The Norwood Suite was another one, the one that you picked, Tanner, mm -hmm. that it was fully 3D. Um, you walked around in this first-person uh, 3D world, and um, it, it was uh, pretty decent but basic 
3D as far as 3D games goes. But the way that he put all of those really weird, surreal, uh, funny, interesting, bizarre assets together and really built that that weird hotel uh, went a long way for that surreal experience that he was making. Uh, It matched really, really well, I think, with the story. Absolutely. I think that was uh, one of the things that really appealed to me about it and, like, wanted me to to pick it for us to sort of work through is how it's sort of a singular experience that, you know, mostly one person developed. So it sort of highlights how uh, even if it's not perfect in every Mm -hmm. way, you can still, you know, create this complete uh, interactive experience and put that out there. Yeah, I liked that a lot. Great, so let's talk about something else about the game. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what, Robbie, you want to take us take us off? So which of the games inspired you the most for your own games? Wow. Or were there any? That's a good question. I, I, don't, I think I have more than one. Okay, well, so, yeah, that's I fine. think... I think talk about um, how they inspired you. Yeah, so near, yeah. Uh, I really liked the way that it dealt with narrative in a in several ways, um, and the way that it experimented with sort of tradi- the mixture of narrative and mechanics. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, that's still the scene. This will be a mild spoiler, but the scene with all of the people, the android people, who are like playing at being androids. Yeah. Um, and the way that you get introduced into scenes like that um, and the way that it tells a story without really telling a story. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, so for me, that was really powerful, interesting stuff um, that sort of sets a narrative world in play. Um, anyway, I'll start there and we can just talk through. I, I mean, they all definitely inspired me. Um for a lot of my games, but everything really stood out because it's um, it's such a non-traditional game. It has, in my opinion, it, it, it gets its message across relatively quickly if you're ready to be receptive to it. And it's, it, it doesn't technically have an end. Like, I mean, we talked about this in, in yeah. the game. Like, it, there is a point where it, it seems like the tutorial is over, but I didn't get there really until the very end my the bulk of my time was spent before that yep um and i still i still liked it i still understood what it had to say i i spent way too much time yeah yeah playing it but it's cool like it, it and it, the game doesn't care that you finish it the game doesn't care that you have all the mm-hmm. achievements it just wants you to sort of be mindful and that's it yeah yep. one of one of my favorite takeaways from our uh that first podcast about everything was at one point i asked you Robbie if you would go back and use that as a mindfulness, like a meditative mindfulness tool. And you said that, yes, you would. Yeah. And, and, and that was uh, really interesting to me. And I, I asked that question because I was also kind of wondering that myself. Uh, would I be able to go back and, and reuse it and, and, and kind of revisit it? I haven't yet, but uh, yeah, I think I will. So I definitely think that all of us picked games because we thought that they would have something interesting about them, so it's definitely hard to pick. I could definitely say one thing from each of these games, at least, that, that were super inspiring to me. But I think, in general, I look to uh, probably the Norwood Suite just because of, well, a few different reasons, but mainly because of scale. Because that's one thing I've been thinking about a lot recently is, is, uh, is the scale of a project and mm-hmm. how to make a very small contained experience. So I've been playing a lot of other games that... Yep 
are real short, but they still are really powerful. And the Norwood Suite is interesting. I wouldn't necessarily know if I would call it a powerful experience, but it was a really immersive one, mm -hmm. um, and that has its own value. So being able to do something like that with um, fairly limited technological capabilities is, is really interesting. Yeah, I'm so glad you brought that up because um, I've been thinking a lot about this idea of the game haiku, right? Mm -hmm. So this concept of how, how can you condense... And again, it, it also makes it useful, right, for those of us who don't have big teams who can work on games. If you want to make an experience, can you make it condensed and small, but give it that punch that a haiku has, right? Um, so anyway, I, I've been thinking about that a bunch, and, and Norwood Suite's a really nice example of that. Um, and the fact that he was just a one-person team that not only did all of the programming and the graphics and put it all together, but the music as well. Um, was really impressive and, and really, I think, inspiring that he could do such a, a big, yeah, a big just, little project. So yeah, a, no, a note on that because I know we have a lot of like designers that listen to to the podcast. He did get in help and input from mm -hmm. DigiPen, I think, mm -hmm. but he at the end of the day he had to go back and yeah. do the work. So yeah. he he listened to the feedback, he took yeah. it in, and then went back and actually did something with it. Yeah. And I will and I will add on to that to say that the Norwood Suite, like even though it's like a quote small scale game, it still took him uh, like what, two years yeah, or so that, yeah. to make it. So I mean it's still like in some ways it's still an ambitious project because yeah. all of the like artwork on the walls were unique. There were not very many repeated assets in the game. Right. So it still sort of shows that you know, it's still a lot of work to even make a small game and so it puts it in perspective. Yeah. And it's interesting comparing it to everything because that was also one person, I believe that made it, right? Was yeah, it? I think that's right. So, uh, whereas all their other games had at least a few people working on them, so just sort of compare, like, sort of the breadth and depth of those two mm -hmm. is interesting. Yeah, and the uh, the interesting thing with the Norwood Suite to me, or I think something important to also point out is it wasn't his first game. Uh, his first game was about five to ten minutes long, I think, mm -hmm. and it's sort of a prequel to the Norwood Suite, so it's not like this was his, his first venture and he, he did all of this and made a you know, a four or five hour game on his first try. Everything wasn't the creator's first game either. Though. Yeah, he yeah, did the mountain. Uh, mountain, and I think he did another small weird thing too. Yeah, but it, I think it definitely pushes, at me at least, to think more about that aesthetic and the idea, right? Because I've been thinking a lot about the music metaphor as well, right? And and I think, I think I've been spending a while thinking about games as albums, and I think it might be useful to start thinking about them as songs, mm -hmm. and that that metaphor works really well for small designers uh, or you know singular designers who are thinking, "Wow, I can't make near Automata, but I could make this compact little thing that gives someone an experience." And and I actually think there's a lot of interest if if they're priced correctly. Um, or even if they're free, I think there's a lot of interest in those. Definitely. Um, given the kind of glut of large, you know, and for most of us, the length of our yeah. our Steam list, right? You've got, I've got oh, probably 200 games now in my Steam list alone that I've never played. Um, and so the question becomes then, what is it that we're asking of people? But also, what are you know, what are our sort of responsibilities as design? Potentially smaller things that are powerful. Right. Um, so all of that for me has been a really great takeaway from from this last season. One other thing, uh, Nantucket. What I took away from that that I thought was pretty cool was the idea of essentially games as fan art, because mm, it's essentially yeah. like here's a or fan fiction rather. Right. Right. Like right. here's a sequel to Moby Dick, <laughs> but like so faithful to it. Yeah. And like I, I if someone told me, well, yeah, there was this obscure Moby Dick sequel. 
and this game is directly based on it. I believe it. Yeah, like yeah. It, it had so many, so mm-hmm. much of the theme, um, and everything. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Nantucket is actually one that stood out to me. I don't know if I would say inspiration, but like inform like actual design choices for like projects we're working on right now with like the event systems yeah. and like the way they handled uh, inserting. Uh, narrative into a very sort of like mechanic or like numbersy game. Like yeah. I, I felt compelled to sort of min max my crew. Uh, that was like my first notion, but yeah. then them pulling back with like the events and the characteristics of mm-hmm. each crew member to sort of get you to humanize them. Yeah, uh, I thought that was interesting. Yeah, the problem, of course, in the end is that it begs comparison with something like RimWorld, right? Which right. is mm-hmm. so much better at it. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, but I, but I'm with you. Like the inspiration for me then was like I don't ever want the curtain to come back in the way. You know, not to pick on Nantucket, but, yeah. but you know, the 15th time a crew member does the same exact quoted yeah. narrative, yeah. you're like, man, that was a I can one. see the great and wonderful Oz, and he's just sitting at a little keyboard tapping, and, and that's that's I, disappointing when it happens. So. I still maintain that. I, I, I understand that it is, <laughs> it is disappointing, but if, you know, I, I still maintain that it was it was deliberate, because I do feel like... Someone <laughs> on that insane quest. That's how you would look at people. No, I know. You're just, I know. You're just I another love that, thing that's that the debate yeah. is reemerging. Oh, it is. I love it. It absolutely is. <laughs> Which is weird because... If you want to know more of our thoughts <laughs> right. on it, yeah, go, yeah. go back and watch episode two. <laughs> episode two. Right. But The scourge of the seven seas. Right. And I know I talk, I, like, I talk a lot about, you know you know, how brilliant all that stuff is and how it wasn't my favorite of the five games. Yeah. I, I know I keep defending that part of it, but uh, to your point about RimWorld, it didn't have sea shanties. So it did uh, not. That's where it the sea certainly shanties. fell short. You yeah. could just sell the sea shanties I think so. as an as a an add on pack. It made me want to stop designing mm-hmm. games and start a sea shanty band. Yeah. Agreed. <laughs> All right, so next up, uh, let's take a look at maybe some some instances where each of these games maybe missed the mark or did something nice transition. Uh, that yeah, they could have done. Let me start with Nantucket. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I actually, I mean, we, we went over and over this. Yeah. I actually would have played Nantucket for many, many more hours, despite wow, its so loss. I know. I wouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to rake it over the coals, yeah. but I would continue to play it. Yeah. You defended it, and yet have never played it again. Yep. Flaws. Yes. It should be easy for us. I mean, (laughs) I hate being me because I mean, I, I am really quick to defend just about any game because I hate seeing games get attacked for stupid little mistakes. Mm -hmm. But, but as a designer, I also like to pick apart them and see like where exactly, like, Mm -hmm. was there something here that could have been improved? Absolutely. This doesn't have to be a negative thing. It can be something that was already good, but like we have an idea of how they could have done it better or maybe it was something they didn't do so well that sort of brought the experience down. So I've got a flaw that's sort of self-deprecating so I don't have to target the game so much as targeting myself. (laughs) Um, Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor was a lot of fun and interesting and all that and but the difficulty that I had with it, the thing that was a flaw for me was some, it was just so and it was meant to be this way but it was so hard to see things and when you got uh, when you got uh, up sick and you were sort of trying to start or, or when you uh, were running out of food and your vision started doing weird mm-hmm. things 
And I totally get that that was all part of the mm-hmm. experience and it was well done. And still it was difficult almost to the point of being a flaw. But not only that, it was really hard to find like direction in yeah. the game. Yeah. And I don't yeah. think Even that's... Even with arrows, I yeah. couldn't mm-hmm. find my way off. Well, I don't mean like physical, like geographical direction. Uh, I, I will Because I, I do think that's intentional. I actually really yeah. like that Me about too. the game. Me too. But I feel like there's a point where I'm just like, now what? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But even then, like, even all those things, like as a gamer playing that, I'm just like, okay, I get, I get, yeah. I get the loop. But then if you step back and look at it, there's definitely design reasons that were there. And we did talk about that a lot yeah, in the episode totally. where, we, where we talked about it. And I had it, sort of a love-hate thing mm-hmm. with it. I loved that it was keeping those things vague. Like, for example, all of the different gods. That it didn't really tell you anything about what those things did or what mm-hmm. the differences were. It was all sort of fluff flavor text about them, but gave you no, no rules uh, info. And I, it was frustrating, but I totally see what they were doing and why, yep. and it made sense. It totally fit the game. But that doesn't mean that it subverted like everything that we hear about good design. Like right. it just didn't feel like a mm-hmm. gamey game. Well, and going back way. to sort of what we were talking about earlier, I think it could have benefited from being a little bit shorter because uh, mm-hmm. there was definitely, I feel like, a hump in the game of like after you get through all the initial setup stuff and you're just trying to earn enough money to get to the end of the game. You do that sort of same game loop for probably two or three wow. hours if yeah. you're, you're probably average at it. Mm-hmm. Uh, could have been a little bit shorter, and yeah. I think it would have had the I same mean, and impact. And that's assuming you even know what you're supposed to be doing. Exactly, yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and this comes back to that idea of, of kind of compactness, right? Like, yeah. like and, and as a designer, now I, as I look forward, I think I would really love to make start making some 10-minute games. Mm-hmm. I think that would be a really satisfying... Um, and be able to sort of give people the taste of the experience right up until the moment when they're like, oh, I'd like a little more, but then the game's over. Mm-hmm. Um, that's sort of the dream, right? That they, you've given them enough to care, and then they want more. But they don't get to the point where they're like, okay, I'm bored with this now. Um, I like the idea of a nicely contained narrative, too. Mm-hmm. Um, that, except for the long loops, I think uh, Diary of a Spaceport Janitor and Nantucket really had and, and really did well uh but yeah I, I, i'm with you i like i'm interested in this idea of making them even smaller well more contained, yeah and quicker. it's part of it is the absurdity of the market yeah right i mean so you get people and here hopefully not enough people listen to our podcast that we're going to skip <laughs> a lot of trolling for this but you get people who are basically making the argument that there's a dollar per hour value mm-hmm. to games right. which yeah. is as absurd an idea as i can think of right yeah, yeah. um you know, so you, it's basically like if I'm going to pay forty bucks for a game, I should get at least this many hours out of it. Right. If I'm going to pay ten dollars for a game, I should get this. M- like, why? It makes no sense, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, if we're talking about aesthetics, if you get a super satisfying experience that lasts ten minutes, isn't that better than eighty hours of grinding away at something that you right. don't really like killing care about? Else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I I love Nier Automata. I mean, I, I chose it for a reason. I absolutely love the game but I do feel like there, there are elements of the game that were added because it's put out by Square Enix and they have fans and there's an expectation, an expectation. Yeah. yeah right and right. and even though even like I think having to replay the game is core to the idea of it and I'm totally fine with that but each especially the first two playthroughs that you have to do are really really long and I it you know I just think there are parts that could have been could have yeah. been trimmed out a little bit and still have had the emotional impact 
but more people would have experienced that yeah. emotional impact. Yeah. Well, the flip of that is that the fishing, there are people who, who only wanted <laughs> to come true. for the fishing. That's true. I don't really care about all the Android romance. Some people. <laughs> I'm just here for the fishing. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Call it metal car. Right. The flip side, though, of the marketplace, though, right, is the beauty that, that we can and, and other designers can, can make, yeah. you know, I was talking to someone yesterday, it might have been one of you guys, um, about this idea, right? Weren't we talking about this, about that if you told somebody 40 years ago that in 40 years yeah. there would be powerful free tools for you to make a game, whatever game you want, and that you could release it to the entire world for $100, yep. um, they would think you were insane. But we can make whatever we want mm -hmm. and, and whatever matters to us. And, and for me, that's such an empowering time. Yeah. yeah. I mean, to be alive right now and be able to do what we can do. Um, so I don't want this to be like a manifesto, but but man, that's cool, right? Yeah, but yeah. Cool. here if you want it. <laughs> Hold on, <laughs> my shoes back on. Um, yeah, so that's that's very cool. I agree. That's that's really inspiring and powerful. I love how that was our negative conversation. <laughs> Can I add one more? It's, oh yeah, there you it's go. not a complaint about the games per se. I'll be just like Brad. Um, I learned, if I ever had a question, and I, I was pretty sure of this already, I learned that the kind of low poly that everything Norwood Suite <laughs> and Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor use is not something I can tolerate for more than a few minutes. Um, literally, like I physically respond to it in a negative way. So I, I, get, I get feelings of dizziness, and it, it feels a little bit sort of hypochondriacal, mm -hmm. but... Um, I recently replayed one of the early LucasArts, like um, yeah. like uh, the Jedi Academy series, uh -huh. which I hadn't played in a decade or more. Uh -huh. And I couldn't, I played it for about 30 seconds and I was like, I can't do this. Wow. Yeah. Um, so for me, I, I just realized that there's a big difference between the kind of low poly we experienced in season one and the kind of like mobile low poly that's that's got like, um, like matte textures and yeah. shadowing that works and things mm -hmm. that give it a more mm -hmm. settled feeling. Um, the, the kind of chaos of low poly that, that we had in some of these games really affected me negatively. Um, and, and again, I think that's a personal thing for me, but, but I just know now that that's not something I can really do. That's really interesting yeah. to me and makes me want, like, I wonder if we could craft something that like approximates Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor and then just apply various shaders and see what and see what yeah. the line is. Yeah, because totally. yeah. 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 it could just be, I mean, it could just be frame rate, it could be interpolation. It yeah, could, like, I know, yeah. Because it, it, it does seem like... Even the anti-aliasing stuff was was could potentially have smoothed it. But yeah, right, it yeah. does sort of seem like there's probably one change the designers could have made. Yeah. To fix the whole thing, yeah. it could also be something in Joe, like lactose intolerance. Lay off, lay off the ice cream. Yeah, yeah, I know. By the time we got to Norwood Suite, though, I had to play in. I played it in windowed mode because I had learned my lesson with the other two. Mm. I played it in windowed mode and I shrunk the window down to like a quarter of my screen, and I was able to, like, wow. there was a point at which my field of view was it was small enough that it no longer hmm. gave me that. That's but I think crazy. it's it's yeah. probably how some people experience VR. I bet, but yeah. um. Yeah. But it's something about the jaggediness of it that just messes with my whatever is in my brain that is supposed to help with that. Um, but anyway, I, that's not anything this, except that. That probably touches on something for a lot of games. I'd say probably most of them. And that's just uh, accessibility in general and probably like 
kinds of accessibility yep. we don't often consider, right? Because, I mean, that negatively impacts how you can experience their game, uh, and it maybe there was a way to have avoided that, right, yeah, without but, compromising anything, right, potentially. And it's a difficult thing to talk about because accessibility is important, and everybody always strives to the degree that they think they should, I guess. Yeah. And the especially the three games that we're talking about right now are such small teams. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, you know... If if they did they maybe they wanted to test those things and they were out of resources, and um, you know it's it's hard to do that when you have a small team. Yeah. Absolutely, it's interesting though. I mean, we could have a whole conversation right. about this, but oh, yeah. there's like different there's interesting level of accessibility of knowing what gamers already know how to do. Yep. That's becoming yeah, an yeah. interesting yeah. problem right now. The like, language of gaming. The, and like mm-hmm. games that have less tutorials. And so introducing new people to games is yeah. really, really hard. Yep. We've been experiencing that with one of our roommates. We've been trying to teach her to play games, and it's sure. hard because they, yeah. they don't teach you anymore. Or I mean, you know, that's a generalization, mm-hmm. but... No, it's true. So I, I remember an old game. I don't... It may have been like a Mech Warrior game where you... It, it in the instructions for the buttons, it told you you know press this button to strafe left or right, and then in parentheses it it had a definition for strafe, yeah. like what strafing means. That doesn't exist anymore. Yeah. It's just like this is the strafe button, mm-hmm. and it's just assumed you know what strafe means. And anecdotally, like I've seen like hostility towards the idea that games should have tutorials. Yeah. A sort of How weird uh, is that? Dark Souls yeah. get good. And I'm like that's that's fine. You can have hard games. But I think there's like an expectation that yeah. you should at least lay out how the game functions in a basic sense. Yeah. It shouldn't just be play it for the first ten hours, losing and figuring out all the mechanics. Yeah, uh, I mean, because you can always add an option to skip a tutorial if you want that experience. But it's well, an interesting idea, I think. Two of our games did the absolute opposite of that. Uh, everything I, I played for, I think two right around two hours. Until you get the thing that says, "Okay, the tutorial's over now," mm-hmm. which blew my mind. I mean, right. it was just like that was that was crazy compared to all these other games that we played. And the other one was Near Automata, where the uh, I don't know if I ever got out of sort of. It always seems seemed to be teaching me. Here's another way to do a thing that's important to this game. Um, so it wasn't like you spent five or ten minutes on learning all the different buttons. You learned to do what you were doing. Here. And then it changed to something yeah. else, and you learn to do that there. And it seemed to keep keep adding those. So truthfully, I think these games that we're talking about right now are sort of really transparent about it. But I think that's that's what every game does. Like every game, when you when you go into a new world, like like Mario Brothers is a good example. When you're in a new world, or when you go to a new level, like there's some sort of new mechanic or some new enemy. There's something new for you to learn, and you are essentially on just a tutorial after tutorial. It just doesn't make it as obvious as some games yeah. tend mm-hmm. to. That can be an important right. motivator for game players, yeah. right? To have the new thing to master. It's arguably totally. the motivator yeah. for why mm-hmm. people play games. So there's yeah. there's two... Oh, I have two points. Do it. Point one is that Stephen Cook, I believe, has a fantastic Gamma Sutra article called The Chemistry of Game Design, yep. which is well worth reading if you've not read it and you're a game designer, um, which captures a bunch of what you guys are saying. Um, the other thing, though, I think that's interesting to me is a lot of this has to do with the kind of maturity of a medium. So because I've paid, I've watched a lot of movies with my kids who are now teenagers. And as I watch movies with them as they grew, 
I was pretty, I was kind of reflective about the experience. So I'd be kind of trying to imagine through their eyes what it was like the first time they watched, you know, whatever, Blade Jaws, Blade, right, Blade <laughs> Runner. And, and the kind of language of film that we, if you watch a lot of films, you just know, right? You know what it means when they do a shot that's a certain kind. Um, and it makes me wonder if as, as games mature, right? So we, film is basically 100 years old, more or less. Um, so in a hundred, you know, when when games, let's say seventy years from now, we may not have this conversation at all because there'll be just such a well understood, you know, and it'll only be people who never go to watch movies, for instance, who will go to a movie and be like, I didn't understand any of that. Um, does that make sense? Like it, it does make sense as it sort of permeates the culture in the same way that film has done. People will just understand the ways in which they're expected to play but i i think right now yeah i think i think some that's definitely true but i think right now there's things like um so for example if you're watching a film there's very few people that would that are going to be thrown by by like a jump cut they're mm -hmm. not going to be like whoa what happened like yes. what exactly. where are we right. what time is it what's happening right. where'd the other room go right that's it's it's intuitive like yeah, we, we just absolutely. sort of understand it and that's why it works and but i think there are there are a lot of designers that assume that there's a lot of things that everybody just understands and it's just not the case. Well, right. No, yeah. that's my right point now, exactly. Yes. Yeah, yeah, right yeah. Now. That right. I think there's a disconnect between the audience. Yes. And that I think it has to do with the maturity of the medium. Yeah. That they're, they're, the audience is in flux, right? So you have a set of people who would understand all of that, but that set is much smaller than designers take for granted. It's like designers are all making a film for like hardcore yeah. film yeah. nerds, basically. Yeah. yeah. But the beauty of it is that there's also if it follows film and other media, right, we're going to have sort of avant-garde movements, right? So yeah. there'll be points where gaming hits a wall and then somebody emerges and goes, oh my gosh, let's do this completely different thing. And, and we people are, will be confused by it yeah. and then they'll they'll absorb it and think this is We already is see that. Yeah. I mean, you got like Meat Boy and Binding of Isaac mm -hmm. and um, even Nero Tomata, I think, is a good example of, of yeah. jumping out of that and... and I do I, think they're already come, they already come in waves yeah, right? yeah. of and these these wave of really innovative things like yeah. this wave and, of and trends. Look at these cool things these indie games are doing and now all these AAA games are copying. Right. It. Mm -hmm. So and I yeah. think no sorry go yeah I think it's also interesting to look at the way that like uh, more sort of mature uh, uses of the media happen. Um, so like one of my favorite instances of this is in the game The Last of Us. Mm. Uh, so you have it's another dad game where you essentially are a father figure <laughs> for a teenage girl and you're trying to get her through the zombie apocalypse. Uh, but you know as it starts out he won't give her a gun because uh, she's an NPC in the game and she helps you. She's invulnerable for the most part. Um, uh, but she <laughs> not in the new one. Not in the new one. <laughs> but sort of as the game progresses, the the narrative and the mechanics sort of combine, and as she is is more trusted, like he's like, okay, fine, I'll give you a gun and you can help me. She becomes more useful as a mechanic. Mm -hmm. So like both of those things sort of intertwine, and that's a really great way of sort of using something distinctly yeah. about games yeah. to characterize uh, this yeah. person. Um, and I think the problem with the way, and this is not necessarily a problem, but the, the complication with the way waves are happening is that it's sort of hyper-accelerated, mm -hmm. um, right? Because there's so much creative contribution to the medium, unlike film, right? Which there are basically 10 filmmakers at all mm -hmm. in the first couple of decades of filmmaking. Um, 
now we've got thousands, tens of thousands of people contributing to the medium all the time. Mm -hmm. Because um, it's so accessible. Yeah, because, because the tools are available. Yeah. But, but I, I think but that, so it, it hyper-accelerates okay. it. No, I, yeah, it's, but it's a, just an interesting complication. Because you get these sort of micro... Yeah. So, so at what point do you sort of call it a wave, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you might have a hundred little ripples, but you have to sort of look back on it 20 years later and go, oh my gosh, this, this sort of tidal change was happening, but we didn't see it because it was all... Or it could be that we're, we're past the point of being able to look back at singular yeah. things like I that know. and say, That's oh, it. well, this is clearly yeah. the uh, expressionist movement yeah. or the... the, the Maybe low. movements are dead. I, I think well, I, I think they're, they're 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 micro movements. They're all yeah. They're all movements happening. Nano, nano movement. Nano the movements. internet killed all movements. You heard it here. <laughs> I think exactly. you can still identify like huge changes even in game design. Absolutely. Like, even the last like ten years. Yeah, I'm thinking uh, Minecraft survival it, games. Yeah, yeah. when Minecraft, Minecraft came out, it totally changed. In fact, I remember having a conversation years a few years before, maybe five years before Minecraft ever came out, um, with some people and. The idea was, it would be great to have a game where you craft a whole lot of things, um, or or. And what I meant <laughs> was, yeah, <laughs> um, I, it, it was a it was a throwback to the old games like Ultima, where yeah. you had to uh, mine and mine and mine, and your the ability to craft was so limited and so sort of transparent and really meaningless. Um, and then. And I was arguing with this person. They said no one would ever play that. Yeah. And then it might course, have been me. My, <laughs> <laughs> I'm ashamed to report that um, it was when, not you. When Minecraft was in beta, and I was like, "Oh, they're looking for money." I looked. At, I played a little Minecraft. This was like before they ever split apart and then did just the release cycle they're on now. And I thought, I played it for about 20 minutes, and I thought, who would ever? Like, I'm not going to give these people any money. That's so funny. <laughs> Who because I play played this? that same beta too, and I was like, oh my God, I can't stop. I should have talked to you. <laughs> I want a t-shirt with this guy yes. on it. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I think that we are in, in uh, microwaves. Microwaves. Yes. We are in microwaves. Plastics. We are in microwaves now. <laughs> it's the new thing. Plastics. All right, so we, we have a new question coming up. There. Um, yes. Um... My question is, uh, which games kind of stuck with you the most? Which one was your favorite? <gasps> favorite. Mm. Oh. Right, so which which stuck with you most? I think maybe not your favorite favorite because that's too. I don't mm. know. Whatever you want to say. I mean, I, I think Nier Automata really stuck with me, um, just because it, it does. Like we talked about. I mean, for everything we talked about yeah. already, like there's so much in the mechanics that are about the theme and about the story that's going on. Um, they, they're really ambitious with their story. And I know that a lot of that is because they're a major studio and they mm -hmm. had a lot of money behind them, so they could do that. But still, I appreciated it mm -hmm. about it. Um, and they, they tackled a lot of really big questions about the human condition yeah. and stuff. and Existence. Yeah. In, in like really smart, good way. And like they didn't, they didn't hold back. Yeah. And I, I like that. I appreciate that. It, I, I love that it felt very um, uh, film, theatrical. Yeah. Um, that was one of my favorite parts and about that. It, it would really be big. It would be really easy to make that sort of game. Like if you take the design document of Nier Automata and give it to like a, a less skilled team, it would come out being you know like a you know like it would it. it it could be like a like a pretentious teenager wrote it or something. You know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah, they, yeah. they were really careful and, and they did a good job and it came out 
being really artful. I agree. So I, I would say near as well. I feel like it'd be hard not to say it, honestly, for which one stuck with you the most. Because, I mean, I didn't even get close to having the entirety of the experience. And it had that moment of, oh, okay, I see what they're doing. Oh, now I see what they're doing. It had several of and those moments. And it just keeps going. Like, there's just more. There's just so much more so to it than it initially yeah. seems. Mm-hmm. And it just kept pulling back the curtain a little bit further and a little bit further. And it just was was really, like, mm-hmm. intensely awesome in that way to me. I agree with both of those assessments of Nier. Um, I have to throw in, though, not only because it was the game that I picked, but... Uh, everything really stuck with me because of what, Robbie, what you said, that return to it as a mindfulness simulator and a, um, I would like to go back and just go to all the nodes and listen to the Alan Watts things again and really concentrate on those and, and try to sort of ingest them uh, to, to, to really make it personal. Yeah. I, I get so I get something out of, out of Nier Automata, like I you know the the story and all that's great, but in between all of that, you also get to feel like a badass. Yeah. <laughs> but so so that's probably why that stuck with me because I have that visceral reaction. But everything almost almost doesn't feel like a game to me. It really does feel like like a tool, that yeah. I'm gonna, or not a tool, but I guess like a a, a really great experience mm-hmm. that I just want to have over and over again. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Right. It's a nice place to be. Um, so I'm gonna actually pick two. Despite my apparent physical revulsion to both of them, <laughs> the ones that stuck with me the most were um, Norwood Suite and Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor. Oh. For two different, two related but different reasons. Diaries of the Spaceport Janitor is such a fantastic parody of existing conventions of the genre that it's parodying that, that I found it wicked satisfying for yeah. that. And I thought about all of the ways that it used narrative and, in, in, and parody in, in kind of really cool ways that I would want to use. Um, and then Norwood Suite just gave me a feeling when I wasn't, you know, nauseous. Um, <laughs> it gave me a feeling that was similar to the beginner's guide. Mm-hmm. Like it got at a, a kind of space that felt um, felt like it was really delivering a, a powerful meaning. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't expecting that. Um, and, I, and again, from a design standpoint, I felt like I could do some of the things that it was doing to deliver a different message or a different meaning, but with the same kind of punch. Um, so yeah, those two, I think, for me. Yeah, absolutely. I think I agree about the Norwood Suite. That's another thing that sort of uh, attracted me to it. Because when I played it at GDC, it was just some random game, and I just sat down and played it for like two and a half hours straight, which is sort of weird there with like literally hundreds of games mm-hmm. uh, that are big and flashy, and this one was not that. Yeah. Uh, so it sort of stuck with me even then. Um, the other one I would probably say is, is everything, uh, because uh, something that's continued to, to fascinate me, just like with uh, The Last of Us, is when when the mechanics and sort of the idea of the game are like deeply intertwined. Yeah. Uh, so sort of how everything, the message of sort of perspective and existence is, is the mechanic of the game. That is what you were doing. The entire point is also the gameplay. There aren't two separate ideas there. Because, uh, like, I really like Nier Automata, but, I mean, like you said, one part of the game, you feel like a total badass, and the other part of the game is making you question, like, existence and humanity. Right. And in some ways, those intersect, uh, but they're not necessarily, like, the same thing throughout the entire experience. 
So that's, yeah. that's something I thought was really mm-hmm. interesting that, that everything did. I think that was really comforting to me about everything. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's what I liked. You know what other game links mechanics and narrative really well is Galactic Scoundrels. <laughs> <laughs> that it does. On Kickstarter right now. Yeah. Live. <laughs> Till July 25th. $25. For when the... we'll be accepting pre-orders. <laughs> <laughs> Just a quick sidebar because I know... We're on the season recap, but it is a little weird. We haven't talked about our game <laughs> on our podcast, <laughs> which true. was funded Sunday night. Yes, That's fully right. funded, one hundred percent. We're we're in the studio here, patting ourselves on the back and uh, doing small dances. It's a, a non-zero part of why this episode's a little bit ad-libbed. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we have been a, a little, little bit disorganized and disorganized yeah. getting a Kickstarter, which we should probably maybe do a a non-game club podcast about our experience with that. Or at sure. least a, a good few idea. blog posts, maybe. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That'd be a good idea. Okay. Back to this. Uh, <laughs> whose question are we on? We're on my question. Joe's question. Is what do you a, got? Do you is, remember your question? I do. Okay. The question is narrative and design? No. That's, that was how it was delivered to me, but I'm is going it? to form it. Um, so I think we've covered a lot of what this last question is going to get at already, but, um, but I think we're trying to also capture this idea of how how narrative works in game design and, and maybe how these five games express that. And, and so the question is, how do they express that narrative in their design? Well, Go. this is not answering that specific question, but um, one of the things that, especially by the time we got to the Norwood Suite, that I loved so much about the games that we chose and about the way that we approach them in our discussion and podcast um, is how essential narrative is to all five of the games mm-hmm. that we did, um, and it and how also how different it was of the different games. But that I, I really appreciate the fact that I don't know if it's inherent in the games that we picked or if we're just really focused on pulling those out. But I like the fact that I'm working with four other people who that's important for for whom that is important. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's really important to me and really satisfying that we kind of cue on the same pieces of those. Uh, and now we can talk about what specific narrative <laughs> Yeah, <pieces>. no. <laughs> no, because what you're saying, I mean, I think for me as a designer and maybe even as a human, the fundamental question for me of, of games is how they interact with story. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and I know there are people who, this is, there's a whole ludology, narratology debate and we don't have time to get into all that. But when I both look at games and play them and design them, the question for me is always about how both how they interact with media that already exist mm-hmm. and, and that it, they've kind of emerged out of, but also how, how I can make story as successfully as possible in that in this new medium that, that we're kind of exploring. So, um, yes, I'm just echoing your, your sentiment. It is, it is satisfying. It's important to recognize, I think, because that's because we, when picking these games, we picked them all for a reason because we thought that they were interesting. But also, the fact that they were all sort of in some way narrative or story driven, I feel like speaks a lot to the sort of things that mm-hmm. we look for. Right. So it's a really uh, interesting to examine all of them that way. Yeah, and I'm going to talk again, even though I've already just talked, because <laughs> I was just today thinking about. So one of the things at Little Rock Games that we've talked about a lot is the kind of social impulse that can come from from game design, right? And so that's part of the mission that's sort of been emerging for Little Rock Games. But I also, we've been talking a lot lately about this idea of empathy games. And and I actually think that our, our interest in story 
ties really closely, at least for me, but I think for other people too, to this question of how games can create empathy and how we can design games that will allow people to experience things that will give them connections to others who they might otherwise not have, have thought about. So I just want to bring that into the mix. All that said, I, I love all of that, and I am very much on board on the power of games to instill all sorts of different emotions, but I really do also care about just the pure emotion of fun, and I do sort of, I, maybe not this next season, but uh, maybe the season <laughs> after that, I do want to pick a game that's purely, uh, or not, not, not completely devoid of narrative, but that focuses more on, hey, this is just the game, and... Yeah, and because I think it's those games are still important and they're still valuable. Yeah. So yeah, and design so, wise, there's lots. Of I, so we are having the yeah, Ludology we, narrative. Yes, uh, narrative. I think we <laughs> we need to have an entire episode where Robbie and I debate what the word fun means. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's not a bad idea. Oh man, we throw down. Um, going back, so pulling it into some specifics of, of games, uh, what Joe said there about empathy in these games, um, I thought in. Uh, both everything and Diary of a Spaceport Janitor in particular, um, they were, they did a really great job of pulling you, pulling your empathy. Uh, I think uh, everything really by sort of design and all of the meta content with what uh, Alan Watts was talking about. Um, it's a, so much of it is about feeling in your place and being connected to everything. And there's so much empathy in that. And then Diary of a Spaceport Janitor, um, I would I, honestly, I never would have expected such a game with the, from the way that it looks. If I judged that book by the cover, I would not have expected it to, to pull so much empathy. Um, and I was, I was very pleasantly surprised that it did. Mm -hmm. um, it, you got it. I mean, it was, and it was Dirt Girl. It was. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, for heaven's sake, right? It's a game that questions the entire notion of a hero's journey, right? Yeah. I mean, it basically says every. I, I go ahead, but, but for me, also, that's the power of it. It's also about living in poverty, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. And scraping by and just trying to get what you need to survive, but also having these dreams of something yeah. more that you but can see, never achieve. That's yeah. that's precisely again. So I'm just gonna play off of that. So, but I think that's precisely the point of the hero's journey, right? Mm -hmm. um, not its sole point, but the very idea of sort of heroic narrative is to get people who are not ever going to be heroes to sort of accept yeah. <laughs> their lives, right? I mean, if you think purely from a social structure standpoint, mm -hmm. the way you avoid revolution <laughs> is by giving people heroic dreams that are satisfied through storytelling, right? So we all watch Star Wars and then we go home to our little hovels and we go, oh well, at least Luke Skywalker got to do something great. <laughs> Maybe someday I can do something great too. And, and the way that Diary of a Spaceport Janitor just basically punches that in the face yeah. is so interesting. Um, so I know I just, I just hijacked what you were trying to say, but, but it, I think you got that it. connection is, is important. Mm -hmm. I care about it. You're never going to be a Jedi, <laughs> but you will be a really good janitor. On right. And let's let's totally take a right turn into mm -hmm. The Force Awakens, or not, what's the last, no, Last Jedi, right? And that final scene where they, you know, the kid with the broom, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's Last Jedi, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. yeah so right? Mm -hmm. That maybe like, that's a whole new reading of that. You know, you don't have to have famous parents. You can just be an everyday kid. Yeah. 
And Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor basically says, nope. <laughs> I don't care what you can do with that broom. You are never going to be a hero. And that's a powerful parody. Just, or that garbage incinerator. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> keep, keep eating those, those brochures about going off planet. Right. Exactly. <laughs> keep eating them. They have protein nourishment in them. <laughs> Keep eating them. Yeah, I mean that was exactly what I was gonna say. It was Diaries of a Spaceport Janitor. Is as far as like narrative and design, like how the game itself makes you think. Okay, yeah, like class mobility at least in this section is sort of a joke. Yeah, like any any real advantage to getting ahead is pure luck. Like yeah. it doesn't matter how hard I work at being a spaceport janitor. It's you're not gonna. No, totally. Up. Yeah, and that's why Brad's comment earlier about the gods, right, is yeah. such a, for me such a potent one, yeah. right? They're just like scribbles on a wall. It's yeah. like we don't. That game doesn't really believe there are gods who care about you. It, you know, it believes the opposite. Yeah. That you sure pray if that if that makes you feel better. Um, it may or may not. This is increase the secret yeah, love exactly. meter <laughs> that helps you get better <laughs> trash. I know. So you know, maybe it's the kind of the really sort of socialist in me I don't know <laughs> what part of me that is but the part of me that believes in socialism finds parodies like that super satisfying because yeah, they're basically kicking the established order in the face yeah. and I think I said punch in the face before but both but kicking, that's cool punching. yeah to do that kind of kicking and punching I agree and so, biting I also feel like uh, near is really worth examining from both a narrative and design perspective mm -hmm. because I mean we've already talked about like the immense like surprising depth that is in that game um, but from a design standpoint it also did some really interesting stuff yep. in tying mechanics to I wouldn't necessarily say mechanics to narrative from my experience but to theme yeah really really Absolutely. strongly yeah. and so I think yeah. that's really interesting stuff like being able to sell your CPU chip <laughs> in the game right. kill yourself accidentally and yeah there's just so many really interesting little little yeah. moments like that that made you feel like mm -hmm. an android which was really yeah. really cool and dimensionality right so you you basically play you play a platformer in part of the game you play a top-down yeah. shooter in another part of the game you play a 3d third-person Character. I mean, that, that felt super innovative. Yeah, it did. To keep jumping between those I would say seamlessly. About 85 yeah. to 90% of the time, it totally worked and it didn't yeah. feel jarring, so yeah. just, which is amazing yeah. to me because yeah. I would have expected. I I did no idea the game was like that when I went into it. And yeah. I as soon as it happened the first two times, yeah. I was like, I'm going to get tired of this yeah. really fast. But it worked right. and it's yeah. great. I had the same thought. I was like, well, that's really weird, but I see what they're doing here. Yeah. And I don't know if I'm going to like it, but you're absolutely right. It, it worked. Yeah, even a little bullet hell. Just a little bit. <laughs> Which is good, because I hate games like that. <laughs> <laughs> That's going to do it for another episode of Little Rock Games Game of the Month Club. Next month... Next month, we're going to be playing Where the Water Tastes Like Wine, and I'm super excited about that. That's my pick, starting our second season. As always, there can be only one theme song for our podcast, and it's Plain Loafer by Kevin McLeod. We'd love to hear from you. Go to playlerockgames.com or email us at playlerockgames at gmail.com. And we will see you next month. Bye, everybody. Bye. 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 Bye.